A program established by the National Academy of Public Administration just marked its first year of operation. The Center for Intergovernmental Partnerships has already contributed to NAPA's work on the grand challenges in public administration. For more, we turn to the center's director, Dr. Nancy Augustine. Dr. Augustine, good to have you on. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. And Just give us the background here on the Center for Intergovernmental Partnerships. What is it and what is its mission? The Center for Intergovernmental Partnerships was established last year at the impetus of a number of fellows of the National Academy of Public Administration who are really interested in reviving the conversation on intergovernmental systems. This is a topic that has kind of fallen off the radar screen in so many ways, how the federal government works with the state, local, uh, tribal, and territorial levels of government. And of course, the pandemic of the last couple of years launched a few trillion dollars the government didn't have through the states to help them deliver pandemic relief to their citizens. So was that part of the thinking here that, golly, this needs to be revitalized because of how many dollars flow from the federal government through state systems and programs to the ultimate beneficiaries? The pandemic has been such a test of the intergovernmental system, and it's both exposed a lot of challenges and a lot of gaps, but it's created a lot of opportunities. So all that federal money flowed through states and localities to try to deal simultaneously with a public health crisis and with an economic crisis. So much distress throughout the country. So it really taxed the existing programs and the new programs that had to be set up in order to get all that money out there. And of course, we're learning now how much of the money went to wrong hands or so much fraud. You know, it keeps adding up. So the impetus really sounds like it's there for much more talking. Absolutely. This is certainly a question that will be dealt with at multiple levels of government. The federal offices of inspector general will be looking at it. The state offices of inspector general. This is just the next episode in the series on the pandemic. And with respect to the center, then, who is involved from NAPA and our federal current operating managers part of this also? And then who do you deal with at the state level? At the state level, we have been working with a lot of the professional associations, all of whom have been mobilized to deal with pandemic response. So one of our partners that we've been working with a lot is American Public Human Services Association. There are just so many questions on how people were able to access or not able to access the assistance that they needed during the pandemic. We've also been great partners with the National Association of Counties, National Conference of State Legislatures, among many, many others. And what form have the activities of the center taken then in the first year? We've focused a lot on creating opportunities for dialogue. So we've had a number of events where we've brought together federal, state, local, nonprofit, and association representatives to talk about common issues. So on any given issue, we talk about what are the challenges, what are the opportunities, what do you need from the other levels of government to make this program work better. So we're hoping the dialogue will help shed light and create a path towards making things work better. And one of the things I noticed in the most recent write-up was that you have been discussing the issue of permitting at the state and local level. Is that a way of getting some of that federal money for infrastructure projects to be more effective and operate more quickly if some of the permitting can be cleared or streamlined in some way? Is that the topic? So those are two different topics. So in terms of permitting, we're exploring how states and localities 
worked with the business community to be able to stay open and to be able to pivot to different forms of business activity, in many cases, to create new businesses. We saw an astonishing uptick in the creation of businesses in so many states. So that's one set of activities. The infrastructure bill, that's a very interesting emerging topic and an issue that we're very interested in exploring, particularly from the standpoint of the communities that are least well able to access funds are the ones that need it the most. Interesting. So that means then that you may not have issues so much with New York City or Cook County or the big, well-established, gigantic governments at the non-federal level, but out there in the hustings where they also need infrastructure work, but they're not so sophisticated in pulling on the federal money levers. Unquestionably, you know, all levels of government certainly have their own challenges in dealing in the intergovernmental system, particularly when it comes to federal programs. But when I made that comment, I'm thinking about the smaller communities that may not have their own grants management office, that may not even have their own full-time legal counsel. They may not have any way of finding the grants, much less applying for the grants. You know, it's just a whole lot of process that does not come easily to the smallest and poorest places. We're speaking with Dr. Nancy Augustine, director of the Center for Intergovernmental Partnerships. That's a project of the National Academy of Public Administration. So is the primary focus going to be research? Is it going to be finding ways of perhaps improving the processes by which government at the local level deals with government at the federal level and vice versa, or maybe all of the above? We're going to continue our emphasis on creating opportunities for dialogue. We've found that to be a very constructive way to use our resources, bringing people together. But we're also moving into areas of research. We aspire to be a hub of information on intergovernmental systems where perhaps we can bring together best practices, foster community of practice, that sort of thing. Because your own personal background, from what I've read, contains a lot of research orientation. Absolutely. The first 10 years of my career were spent in local government. I was an urban planner in three different localities in Virginia, and that's where I really got my orientation to government and public service. But yes, since then, I have focused primarily on research based in that understanding of practice. And for the year ahead then, any particular projects planned? Yes. For the year ahead, we are moving into a number of particular areas. So I mentioned social services earlier, that's going to continue. Uh, We are starting to look at agile management practices. I know that's a little buzzwordy, but can good management bring an improvement to the social services system? That's the kind of question that we're looking at. We're also gearing up for some work on disaster resiliency, and this is where the focus on those communities that are least well able to access federal funds comes in. We're planning to work with federal partners to talk about how their existing programs can be better leveraged to help those communities prepare and stave off disasters. Just out of personal curiosity is the seeming decay of the public water system, which is really 10,000 separate systems in the United States. Is that a subject of study, do you think, in the coming year? Because we've seen evidence of where water systems are not doing so well, and that's always been one of the crown jewels of the federated system, you might say, for the developed world, is the American ability to drink from any faucet. I appreciate that you asked that because that really brings together a couple of threads. It's this disaster resiliency, in a sense, 
as well as infrastructure investment. You know, there are questions of how those funds are going to be distributed and whether they're going to be distributed in a way to deal with those most urgent problems. And that's not just an issue for, as we mentioned earlier, the rural or less sophisticated areas. I mean, Baltimore has a boil water warning going on right now. It sure does. And, uh, you know, the problems in Detroit are also quite well known. So many cities with the older infrastructure are going to have to rethink their clean water, their drinking water and their stormwater. Sure. And you don't want the mixing, which can happen to it, you know, in one tube and out the other. Not such a good idea. And at the Napa level, they're saying that the center that you are heading can also help Napa with its 12 grand challenges in public sector administration. What are one or two of those that you think you'll really be able to help Napa with? One thing to bear in mind is that the vast majority of domestic policy in the United States is implemented at the state and local level. So virtually all of the grand challenges in public administration facing the country today are a question of state and local implementation. So, for instance, uh, one of the grand challenges is to improve resiliency, and we will squarely be focusing on that. During our first year, we also worked on the grand challenge related to making sure everyone has access to meaningful work. This is yet another issue that we're fascinated by. You know, the, the shortage of workers in so many sectors is quite well known. We looked in particular at the shortage of infrastructure workers. And I know a lot of other associations have picked this topic up. Crucially important, all the billions of dollars going into infrastructure projects across the United States, who's going to do the work? Who's going to do the engineering? Who's going to build the structures? So that's a good question. And just a final question, again, on a topic detail, but disability costs have been getting out of control for Social Security and other programs. And you look across the nation, not only is the caseload up because the population keeps rising, but also because a greater percentage of the population. And so a lot of states are grappling with ways to get people off of disability back to work, but maybe not lose all of their benefits. So there's some incentive to get off and some way of avoiding disaster by withdrawing all the benefits. Is that part of the thinking here, the the whole disability system? So I can't speak to the disability system per se, but I think what you're getting at is absolutely germane to what we were just talking about, is how to make the workplace more accommodating to people with physical disabilities of some kind, other disabilities. You know, one area that I know there's been a lot of work is how to make the workplace more receptive to neurodivergent people, particularly in federal agencies. So yeah, I think this is an emerging area that I'm looking forward to seeing how this unfolds. All right. Some exciting stuff. Dr. Nancy Augustine is director of the Center for Intergovernmental Partnerships at the National Academy of Public Administration. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined 
by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation. But it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for 
taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, 
you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. At the Home Depot, we have the tools to make your holiday magic in the easiest way possible. With our easy-to-assemble artificial trees, you can have a fully shaped, realistic tree up in your house within minutes. And you know your holiday look wouldn't be complete without our classic animated Santa that collapses for easy storage. Get free delivery on over 2 million eligible items, and you can spread holiday cheer to the whole neighborhood easily. The Home Depot. How doers get more done.